And Father, we pray that you will help us now to understand what your word is saying to us tonight. We pray that you will speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you have a seat? I know it's Easter now. I feel happy we've sung that. I love it. In fact, I think the first time I heard that song was a life-changing moment for me, which is what we're going to think a little bit about tonight. What life-changing moments have you had? When I was thinking about this, I guess one of the biggest ones for me was getting married. The ardent feminist submitting to marriage. But he is lovely. I remember the day we got married, it was wonderful. And I think for me, the biggest thing was having to change my name. Something I'd carried with me for many years. Claire Evans, it was just natural. It was who I was, it defined who I was and everything about me. And everybody knew me as that. And I remember waking up the morning after we got married and going to Sainsbury's to buy some suntan cream because we were off on honeymoon. And all my credit cards were still in Claire Evans. And so I went to pay and I thought, goodness, this is bizarre. I've got a big white dress in my car. I went through all of that yesterday and I'm still signing Claire Evans. Yesterday was a life-changing moment for me. And over the next few months, as things got changed, passports and bank accounts and everything became Claire Earl, I remember thinking, cool, who's Claire Evans? And somebody wrote me a cheque this year to Claire Evans, and I thought, goodness, I don't even know who that is. And they wouldn't bank it, and yeah, it was all a bit of a disaster, really. It was a life-changing moment and a name-changing moment for me. Everything had changed My name, my marital status, things had changed in my life. Today we've been singing about not just a life-changing moment, but a history-changing moment. The resurrection of Christ is a history-changing event. Our own time has been defined in some senses by the coming of Christ, before Christ and after Christ. And the resurrection of Christ is a history-changing event. But as we saw this morning through the testimony of Hannah and of Charlotte, it's a life-changing, significant event that has happened to us. We know from our own experience of finding God that understanding that Jesus didn't just die but he rose again has completely changed our lives. Everything in my life has changed since I became a Christian. Everything, my outlook, my attitudes, my reference points, everything has changed. Think for a moment, what has changed in you since you became a Christian? Just think about that in your heads for one moment. I'm sure, like me, the list is quite long. And Paul, here in Ephesians, is beginning to try and sort of unpack some of the things that have changed because of the resurrection of Christ. He's saying, in history, the resurrection has been a turning point and it's got the power to change everyone's lives. He knew it for himself. He's talking out of an exciting personal experience. Everything for Paul 
had changed. If you just read Acts 9, his uh, conversion moment is incredible. I'm sure you know it very well. He's walking along a road. He is a persecutor of Christians. And he really doesn't like Christians at all. Really, really doesn't. And then he encounters the resurrected Christ. And here, he's talking out of personal experience of what can change. It's an exciting thing for him because he's seen it change in his life. Let's uh, look together. You'll find it really helpful to have a Bible handy. It's uh, 1,174 in the uh, Pew Bibles. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 is where we're mostly looking. But if we look at quickly just at the previous chapter, chapter 1, verse 15 onwards, Paul's kind of uh, doing a nice thanksgiving um, prayer, talking through what Christ has done. He's talking about Jesus Christ being the one raised from the dead, the one who has all the authority, all the power, and all the dominion. But chapter 2, the bit we're looking at today, goes on more to talk about how this history-changing event affects everyone who has lived. Verse 1, it starts with, As for you. He's already been talking about Christ, but now he's saying, right, guys, this is about you. As for you, are you ready? I'm going to speak to you, is what Paul is saying here. As for you. Let's start by thinking before the resurrection, or before we were Christians. Verses 1 to 3 highlight some scary things. It says very clearly that humanity was dead. Let's look at verse 1. As for you, you were dead. Couldn't be much clearer than that, could it? As for you, you were dead as a dodo. But there are a couple of things that he goes on to say. Firstly, we're dead in ourselves. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, it says. All that we did was wrong, all was sin, all the selfishness, single-mindedness, all of that had separated us from the life-giver, the Heavenly Father. It had killed our very being. We were as dead as a dodo. But even more than that, it goes on to say, we were dead in the eyes of God. I think verse 3 is very uncomfortable goes on and says, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. The Greek in this actually says children of wrath, which I think is even more scary. Children deserving the anger of God in its fullness. The wrath of God is talked about again and again in the Old Testament, but actually it pops up quite a lot in the New Testament too. But what is it? Have you ever got angry with anybody? <laughs> I'm the queen of getting angry about silly things. Toilet seats being left up, someone eating all the nice chocolates and leaving all the ones with nuts in. <laughs> things do wind me up. But actually, God's wrath is very, very different to this. God's anger is different. It's not losing its temper, it's not losing his temper. It's, as one commentary put it, 
that a very useful man called Steve Mateer says this, God's wrath, the attitude which he, the holy God, must have towards sin and towards those who commit sin. God cannot abide sin, he hates it. Yet something amazing is still true. Whilst he hates the sins, he still loves the sinners. He hates the sin, but loves the sinners and longs so much more for them to be rescued from their sin. It comes together at the cross. There's that song, I think it's a Graham Kendrick one, Come and See, it says, We worship at your feet where wrath and mercy meet. You see, God is a holy God who has this attitude towards sin. He cannot abide it. But actually, he still loves us. And it's held in tension, and we see it on the cross. I guess that's another sermon in some ways. But actually, when I look at the cross, I see the love of God. But I also see how he feels about sin, that he had to kill his his son, had to die, that his son had to die because of the sin we had committed. Not him, but us. Anyway, this passage is saying that we were dead in our own selves, but also dead in the eyes of God. He still loved us, but the sin that we were committing actually made us dead in the eyes of God. We couldn't be in his presence because of our sin. We could never be allowed to enter into his heavenly place because of the sin that we had committed. hope you're all feeling mightily depressed after singing that song. It does get better. But before it gets better, Paul points out how this affects humanity. Verse 2a goes on and says that because of this, you're following the ways of the world. We know that the ways of the world are fickle, ever-changing, often confusing, always harmful. And Paul goes on here to say that actually, to live this way, you follow the ways of the world which lead to harm. But then in verse 2b, he says that we are following the ways of the ruler, Satan. Let's have a look at verse 2 together. In which ways you used to live when you followed the ways of the world, number one, and the rulers of the kingdom of the air. The Ephesian church would have known that that was Satan. They were very familiar with that term. Satan was worshipped very much in Ephesus. Doing evil rather than good. That's what this lifestyle leads to. And finally, it goes on to talk about being ruled by flesh. It's all about me. It's all about what I want to do, who I am. Stuff everybody else. It's all about me, how I want to live. Being dead in sin doesn't leave humanity in a very good place. Controlled and ruled by so many bad things, living without purpose, as we've been thinking about, worshipping all kinds of harmful things. Paul really uses words such as flesh and the ways of the world. But let's think a moment about our world. I um, had a quick look, it really was a quick look, on uh, some of the headlines this week. And straight away... I found three things that could easily be talked about here in this passage. This was the, uh, the first headline. Most women hate their bodies. 
According to the survey uh, by some magazine, one in 50 women in Britain are unhappy with the way... Uh, no, sorry, one in 50 women in Britain are happy with the way their body looks. So that means 49 out of 50 women would like to be different. Different in looks, different in size. Apparently, a woman worries about her body every 15 minutes, while 29% worry about their size and shape every waking minute. Whew. I'm not one of those. I eat too much chocolate to worry about my... This is a lie of Satan, friends, that we listen to what the world says about what we should look like. Now, yes, we should eat healthily. I'm going to promote that. But actually, we listen to things that we shouldn't do about who we are. It's a lie of Satan. What about ways of the flesh? I would say owning too many cars is uh, probably a way of the flesh. Charlotte Church, who has not got a driver's license as of yet, but is learning to drive, drove um, on her driving test the other, uh, lesson the other week three different kinds of cars, just because she could. I think she's got too much money. People do live like this. And then yet, there are so many people in this world who haven't even got fresh running water. Finally, in uh, Afghanistan this week, seven Afghan children were killed in a rocket strike. A rocket hit a crowded open-air school in the yard of a mosque on on Tuesday, killing seven children and wounding another 34. The world we live in shows what it's like to be dead in sin. Again and again, we hear of stories that tell us about the lies of Satan, the ways of the flesh, the sins of the world. Paul knew what he was talking about. It wasn't just about his time, but it's about today too. Fortunately, things get better. We're looking at verse 4 onwards now. The resurrection of Christ has changed everything. 2 verse 4 starts with, but, and then there's a little bit in the middle, that in the Greek isn't there, and then it says God. So actually in the Greek it reads, but God, because of his great love for us, but God, two very short words that actually changes everything. But God He went, he saw the world, he knew what kind of state humanity was in, and he did something about it. Two small words, but God, but God stepped in. God did something about it. It's by grace we've been saved, nothing of our own good. God's rescued us from death by joining us with Jesus in his resurrection. That's what this passage is saying, verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ. God saved us and raised us up with Christ. Jesus did not stay dead. He beat death, defeated it, came back to life. He's stronger than the power of death. As uh, the previous chapter says in verse 19. And his incomparable great power for us who believe 
The power is at working in us, in, in him, in mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Because of what God did, we have a new life. Because the, of Jesus dying, we also die to ourselves, put him first and rise again to a new life. Look at verse 4 and 5. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. We've got a new life in him, friends. Let's think about this some more. Why on earth did God want to do this? What was his motivation? Surely he could have looked at the state of the world, of the people, and he could have said, right, I give up on them. They've turned away too many times. I've given them too many opportunities to change. Surely he could have given up on us completely. Well, we know he didn't. So what was his motivation? Verse 4 says, love was his motivation, his great love for us. This passage start, uh, is continued um, through the next couple of chapters and it goes on, as we know so well, in Ephesians 3 to talk about God's love. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Wow. God didn't give up on us because he loves us. Sounds so simple, but it's so life-changing. Accepting that he loves his creation, that he couldn't leave us to die forever, that he had to do something about it. God's great love for us was one of his motivations. But the second was God's mercy. We talked a bit about wrath. The wrath of God had to be sorted. He is a holy God. He had to do something about sin. He couldn't just let it lie because he was holy and perfect. And so in his mercy, he wanted to save us without us having to suffer the death that his son did. He is a merciful God. And that was one of his motivations. But then five, six, uh, 5, 7 and 8 goes on to talk about grace. God didn't have to save us. He chose to. We didn't deserve it, but he wanted to. He could have said, my resurrection is only for certain people. Only for men who put the toilet seat down and women who don't nag. He could have said that, but he didn't. By his grace, you have been saved. He didn't have to. He chose to. But then we move on to verse 7. I like this verse, because I guess we don't always think about God being kind in order that in the coming age he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, just what we've talked about, expressed in his kindness to us 
in Christ Jesus. God's a kind God. He's got our best interests at heart. He wants the best for his children. He's a God of kindness. Let's remember that this week. What was God's motivation? His great love. What was God's motivation? His mercy, his grace and his kindness. Let's just stop for a moment. Think about those four things. What do they mean to you? So God did something about it. We are now raised with Christ through his resurrection. He did it because of these great things. But what's the consequence? What are the consequences? Three men get to heaven. And they're sat in the waiting room, sort of ready to go through for their interview. As obviously the good theology says. And they're sat in heaven... And a man comes up to them and he says, what would you like people to say about you at your funeral? And the first man says, I'd like people to say I was a good man and that I always looked out for other people. So that's great. So the man moves on and says to the second man. And he says, I'd like people to say I was a good father, that I always looked after my children. And that was fine. So the man moved on to the last guy. And he said, I'd like them to say, look, he's moving. Am I the only one who found that funny? (laughs) Obviously. Jesus actually did that. He came back from the dead. And actually, whilst one day these earthly bodies will go, and hopefully people will say nice things about us, you are a new person, a new creation. You're alive in Christ. Your old life is gone, your new one is here. You're a new person from the inside. You're not a sinner but a saint. A completely new person, alive in Christ. Look at uh, verse 5. We're made alive in Christ. Eternity is going to be a jolly long time. But we're not going to be there alone. But we are going to be there because of what Christ has done for us. Our old lives are gone and our new life is here because of our resurrection with Christ. One thing that's really uh, struck me over the past few weeks, I guess, concerning 40 days of purpose, is how wrong the world have got it. You know, they kind of want more money or a good job or to be able to have a good career. But actually, for Christians, it's about being alive in Christ and living to serve him Our purposes are based on him. Our purpose is about having that resurrected life to live. A new person with new purpose, joined in Christ through his resurrection. How can we possibly live the same as anybody else when we know what Christ has done for us? But he goes on again to talk about being raised with Christ in the heavenly realms. Yes, you've got your spot in heaven reserved to you now. My little plot's by the seaside and next to the Cadbury's chocolate factory. But, actually, verse 6 talks about being something different. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms 
in Christ Jesus. What on earth is that about? All of the books I've read just simply say it's about having our lives safe in the hands of God. We belong to him. We are new creations in the creator's heart. Nothing can threaten us as we sit with the Lord of all. Your new life means you're, ha- you're safe in the Father's hands. Nothing can separate you from God. That's quite amazing. That psalm that we know so well about God walking through the, the valley of the shadow of death with us. That's so true. He will always be there. Our lives are safe in his hands. We can trust him. Very quickly, another thing that uh, Paul then goes on to talk about in verse 11 onwards is saying, because you are alive in Christ, you are a new creation, you have been uh, raised with Christ, you are now people of faith. He starts saying this uh, towards the end, but then goes on talking about us being one in Christ, part of his family. We've talked about this again and again. Someone uh, wise, I think it was John, J. John, said, um, faith hears the inaudible, sees the invisible, believes the incredible, and receives the impossible. Well, people who live like that. I remember sharing uh, my faith with a friend once and telling her about Jesus coming back from the dead, and she nearly fell off her bar stool because she just thought it seemed so ridiculous, so impossible. How could someone come back from the dead. And it was at that point I had to remind myself not only was it true, but actually it was so impossible that actually only God could do it. God has done the ultimate impossible in the resurrection. He's brought someone back from the dead, washed away our sins, given us new life, and now we should live by faith knowing that nothing is impossible for our great God, knowing that he can do incredible and amazing things and that we can trust in him. Finally, our first memory verse. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. To share in Christ's resurrection means your new life should be all around him and what he wants you to do. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Because of the resurrection, we have a new life. How on earth are you going to use it? How on earth are you going to use it? Today, I guess, is in some ways the last day of our 40 Days of Purpose campaign, and God has been doing so much among us. What's he been doing in yours? But it's only the beginning. Christ lives in you. You are raised with him. You know what God's purposes for your life are. Jesus' resurrection has changed everything. How are you going to live from here on in? As we think about that question, Anne's going to come and sing a beautiful song to us.